This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. This is episode 203 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. My name is Rob Snow White. In this episode, I interview Tony Friedrich. Tony spoke after me at the Mason Dixon Writers Association in April of this year. I was unable to listen to him speak due to afternoon engagements, so I decided it would be a great idea to have him on the podcast where I could hear about what he talked about, plus share it with everybody. In this episode, we're not only going to discuss the Magnuson-Stevens Act, we're going to discuss the health of the Atlantic Ocean and Chesapeake Bay, some of the human factors that are causing decline in fish populations. In addition, we're going to talk about Lefty Craze Tie Fest, which Tony puts on every winter. Hope you all enjoy this one. We have Tony with us today. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Tony Friedrich, uh, recreational fisherman, Eastern Shore, Maryland. All right. Where on the eastern shore would you be located? Uh, I'm a few miles south of Kent Narrows on Eastern Bay. So that's for people that don't know, if you go over the Bay Bridge by Annapolis, you're right over the bridge, the second bridge then? Go yeah, the, the, second, the second little bridge. Kent Island cuts the bay in half, 
and there's a there's a little stretch of water on the east side of Kent Island um, that kind of makes it an island. And I live on the east side of that. Uh, it creates kind of like a secondary bay called Eastern Bay. It's a nice place to call home. I imagine. If you have a celebrity doppelganger, who would you want listeners to picture? As so uh, I, I, I polled my family about this, and my wife says it's a combination between George Washington, Margaret Thatcher, and Rick Astley. My son voted on uh, Harry Connick Jr., so right now it's an enigma. Um, we don't know, <laughs> but yeah, there's, uh, there's, there were quite a few comments. Fantastic. I like the Margaret Thatcher thrown in. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So did you grow up on Kent Island? No, I, uh, I actually grew up in the South. Uh, my family's from Louisiana and Tennessee spent, spent most of my youth there hunting and fishing, uh, moved here about 20 years ago. And have, you know, found it a nice place to call home. Fantastic. You seem to have developed a little bit of, when I say an accent from over there, say water again. Water. Yeah. Well, then again, my mom says I'm a southern redneck, even though I'm from northern Virginia, with (laughs) my way of speaking. All right. So you grew up south, moved up here. Where'd you go to school? Did you go to undergrad? My father uh, was transferred to New York uh, for the last part of my high school, so I ended up going to high school in New Jersey, which was a very interesting time in my life. It was uh, it was a culture shock. I, I kind of left behind a lot of the hunting and fishing uh, that I was used to, and really the, the best thing out there was an opportunity to acquaint myself with the Atlantic ocean. And at that time, striped bass in the eighties were at an all time low population wise. So mainly fished for bluefish off the beach and, and just kind of learned that area. Went to college, uh, at university of Maryland. And from there kind of lived all up and down the East coast for a few years until I settled back in Maryland. Were you throwing plugs and bait at the time, or were you throwing deceivers at the stripers and blues, the few stripers that were there? I was real fortunate to be introduced to fly fishing to, to fly fishing from my grandfather when I was six or seven years old. He he spent a lot of time with me in the mountains of Tennessee, teaching me how to teaching me how to fish for trout and be a good steward of the resource. So I always had an affinity for fly fishing. At that time in the 80s, technology was not what it was now. So you were something special if you had one fly rod and a fly line that you could actually go out in salt water and catch fish. So it was a combination of both. At, at that time in my teenage years, I would find the fish with a spinning rod and and then try to figure out how to catch them on a fly, which which I think is a path that a lot of people take to get into fly fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 kind of do both until they decide this is the way I want to go. Yeah, it was the first straight bass I caught on a fly rod, which is what made me put down my spinning gear for good. It changed me that much. It's something special to be standing with your toes in the sand. Yeah, we you know, have- uh, that, that just staring out in the ocean and wondering what you're going to see. Absolutely. So you mentioned you've got a family. How long have you been married? 
by last count, 743 years. All right. That's what it feels like anyway. I'm I'm at 15 as of today. We're, hey, congratulations. Uh, we, we are, uh, 17, 18 years been married. Fantastic. How many kids? I have one son. Uh, he's about to turn nine and he is, he is turning into one heck of a little fly fisherman. Fantastic. And what do you do when you are not doing family stuff, fishing, when you're not fighting for the fish? Do you have any other hobbies that keep you busy? Rob, that's about all that I do. Um, my whole my whole life pretty much revolves around my family in the water. I, I I fish as much as I can, but work usually takes up a lot more than forty hours a week. And um, you know, I'm just I'm fortunate to where I, I my, my work directly relates to my passion. So it's. There are good days and bad days, but it's never like real work. I appreciate all the the work you're doing. That's why we have you on today is to find out about this stuff. So before we get into fish and activism, the meat and potatoes or the fish chowder of what we're going to be talking about, you also host an annual fly fishing event in now Annapolis. And I've been there years ago. I had time to go. Uh, you want to talk about Thai Fest, Lefty Craze Thai Fest? Sure. It it started, gosh, eight, 18 years ago, Rob, 17, 18, 19 years ago. And it was essentially a couple of guys in a basement who just wanted to shake off the winter shack nasties and get together and tie some flies. And it was at this gentleman, a uh, guy named Jay's house, and we had it there for two years. And he decided he didn't want to do it anymore because there was a lot of people showing up, and there was a there was a year that it didn't happen, and I, I just thought it was a great thing people just getting together to promote the sport. So I, I talked to the now gone fly shop over here on the eastern shore called Winchester. It used to be called Winchester Creek. You've probably passed, anyone who's driven to the beach has seen it's a it's a dentist office fly fishing shop that's buildings now for sale, but the sign's still up. And I asked them if we could uh, we could host a little event just where we'd get the community together and tie some flies. And the shop was very positive, and they allowed me to do it. And I I thought maybe thirty people would show up and. When it, at 9 a.m. when it started, there were 100 people waiting outside, and in walks Lefty Cray. Uh, totally out of the blue, did not expect him to come. He just had a free weekend, heard about a bunch of fly fishermen get getting together, and from there it was it was like throwing a match in a powder factory. Uh, it it just blew up. We outgrew the shop. Um, from, from there, we started having it at small local venues and just every year outgrew one after the other, moved it to Annapolis this year, had, you know, over a thousand people attend. It was two days, seminars, uh, and, and I, I think the difference between Lefty Craze Tide Fest and, and a lot of the other shows is, it's not a trade show. Um, my main goal 
isn't to make money doing the show. My my main goal is to to get kids to come in for 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 the moms and dads to bring their their sons and daughters and get them to sit right next to the biggest names in the sport like Bob Popovich, Clouser, Lefty when he was alive and and really show them that how different our sport is where the elites, the biggest names are just regular people who who love what they do and and they love more than anything seeing kids getting involved. So I, I just I, I organize it almost as a break even event uh, just to promote the sport, and I think that's why a lot of the big guys come because they understand it's it's for good. Uh, it's it's just for the good of the community. Um, it means a lot to me fly fishing. Uh, I, I I don't want to see the sport go away. Our numbers are declining, and I think it's real important that we just teach kids the right way. The, the the right way to approach the sport, the resource, to to understand that if you're a fly fisherman, there's a big responsibility that comes with that. It's not just about catching pictures and putting them up on social media. It's about being a good steward of the resource and always always thinking of the future. Uh, so I that's it's a it's a big source of pride for me that event to to know to really sit down and understand where it came from and to see where it's gone. It's it's pretty incredible. Do you have a date set for 2019? Uh, yeah, Rob, I'm going to pop open my calendar. Uh, it, it's I always set the date for the uh, the Cupertino, the the California Fly Show, because I have the least amount of conflicts there, and I believe that's going to be February 23rd and 24th this year. Or I'm sorry, in 2019. So that that I believe will be the date. Uh, just just so we can have I can have the most of most amount of local people with no conflicts. So people should look for Margaret Thatcher with Harry Connick Jr.'s hair, and they'll find yes. you. Yes, yes, and a beard. There we go. All right, should we go into? If I get pronounce it right, Magnuson Stevens. Yeah, that's correct. So all right, so let's break down. Can you give us a quick – if I was just to bump into you on the street and say, oh, yeah, you gave a talk up at uh, the Mason-Dixon Writers Association. What was it about? What would be your brief explanation of what you presented up there, which is why I'm having you talk now because I missed that talk and I wanted to get it out to everybody. I, I appreciate it, Rob. I appreciate the opportunity. So – there, there is a, a law called the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And many years ago, it was not uncommon to be fishing off the coast and to see a Russian trawler come up and scoop up all the fish right, right from the beach. So the United States saw all of these countries basically coming in and keeping our fish. And they, they knew that they had to enact some kind of law that would protect our waters. So in the 70s, they passed the first iteration of the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And essentially, it created an area called the EEZ that are it's, – it's waters managed by the United States from three to 200 miles out from the coast. And it prohibits foreign countries' vessels – from coming in and fishing for 
our fish. As as time has gone on, Magnuson Stevens gets amended, reauthorized, you know, tweaked to bring it up to date with the current situations. And every time it has been amended, it has done great things. It, it is it's addressed. Uh, you know, obviously getting getting foreign vessels out of our out of, out of our waters. It is addressed funding scientists with giving giving them the ability to to count the fish, which is not exactly easy. You know, it's it's easy it's easy to fly over a forest, a ten thousand acre forest, and take a picture of an of two or three acres and get an idea of what exists in all 10,000 acres of that forest fish move around. Generally we can't see into the water and you know, they, they, they migrate incredible distances. So it's very difficult to understand how many fish we have and, and the overall health of the population. So it, it addresses, it, it kind of addresses all of these things to ensure that the coastal communities, the corporations, the mom and pop tackle shops, that 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 huge economic driver in our country, it, it it tries to give it some consistency. So that's to answer your question. That's a broad view of the Magnuson Stevens Act, um, and we can you know we can take a deep dive whenever you want. But just to address that first question, the Magnuson Stevens Act governs federal fisheries from three to two hundred miles out. And, and really, anyone who fishes in the salt water and catches a fish, this is a good law. This is, this is the reason why we haven't seen the declines that Europe and Asia have seen, because we have a strong law that protects our resources. And they, they, fished, their, they fished their populations out hundreds of years ago. Is this both coasts of America? In the entire third? United States, Rob. Okay. And how is that enforced? We, there's a guy up near uh, Chain Bridge who I parked next to his house and walked down, and he said back in the day when, in his youth that he would be on these patrol boats in Puget Sound, and they would chase Vietnamese and Chinese ships out of Puget Sound. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Oh, oh yeah, he's not he's not kidding. If you if you go back further than that, Rob, and and looks and I'll I'll explain the enforcement in a second. But if you go back a hundred years uh, and you you look at the oyster wars that went on in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, oystermen in the Chesapeake Bay in the eighteen hundreds had cannons on their boat, and they would actually get into you know like pirate fights with the Coast Guard over harvesting oysters. Uh, Chesapeake Bay Retriever is not a retriever. It was it the the breed was actually designed as a guard dog for the oyster boats uh, to to make sure that people wouldn't get on the boat and damage the boat. You know, if I if I pour sugar in your gas tank 
I can catch more oysters than you. Mm-hmm. This is, again, this is a hundred and something years ago. So they, they actually bred Chesapeake Bay Retrievers as guard dogs that could deal with horrible weather that would just live on the boat. It's the, the, the history, what people, what people don't understand is the amount of money that goes into harvesting fish. I had an economics professor in college, and he was an ex-policeman from the Bronx. And I said to him one day after a tough class, you know, you're, a, you, you're, you're an ex-police officer. What is the perfect crime? And he looked at me and he said, hijack an 18-wheeler full of frozen seafood. He said, there's no way to trace it. Any restaurant will buy it, and it's almost worth as much as gold. And I never forgot that, and it's very true. There's there's a lot of money to be made out there, and people are going to find a way to do it. So, you know, if I needed $100, if I kicked in somebody's door, stole their TV, brought it to a pawn shop, I have a pretty good chance of going to jail for a while. But if I go out and catch a bunch of fish and sell them to a restaurant, black market, or I raid an oyster sanctuary... And again, sell it black market to a restaurant. It's completely untraceable. And if I get caught, I mean, maybe, maybe I'll get a $500 fine. Maybe. That's like what's going on go with the snakeheads. You see all these guys yeah. yanking them out of the Potomac, and they're just going straight to the back of restaurants selling them. Yeah, and it's, it's the exact same thing, Rob. And that the, those fish are probably getting $6 a pound wholesale. So you catch a 10-pound snakehead, that fish is worth $60. Yeah. My clients ask, why are these guys standing on a rock for 10 hours a day? Well, if you get seven or eight snakeheads, you can make that's, a lot of a, money. That's a good day of work. Yeah. So in, in regard to how they enforce it, it's pretty incredible. Uh, and, and the best way that I can I can explain this to your listeners is using an analogy. So we'll take striped bass because they're you know such a – such an important species to the East Coast, you are not allowed to fish for striped bass beyond three miles, okay? And that is for several reasons. It's to kind of give them a buffer, give them a safe place to hide because they, they're, they're caught 12 months out of the year. And for a long time, people, <clears throat> people were fishing over that line. You know, if, you, if you're fishing two and a half miles out and you look – and there's a storm of seagulls and gannets and everything else four miles out, it's very tempting for a fisherman to go over that line and fish. Well, it got so bad that NOAA sent these kind of AWAC radar planes out, and the line of sight is about 17 miles. So these planes have very high-tech cameras, and they will fly 17 miles away from the fleet, and they can take pictures of your registration numbers and and put on GPS exactly where you are. And people started getting fines and tickets and, you know, really, really levied some serious penalties against them. And that curbed the behavior. But they, they have all sorts of tricks up their sleeve to to enforce the laws. Good. So. And what specific species, um, since we're talking about fish, it's striped bass. Um, uh, Menhaden that are controlled that are controlled by Magnus and Stevens. Yeah, what are they protecting? So, uh, striped bass actually aren't controlled by Magnus and Stevens. Uh, 
Magnus and Stevens set up eight regional councils, which is you, if you if you follow fisheries politics, would be, which would be like the South Atlantic Council, the Mid Atlantic Fisheries Council, the Gulf Council, the Pacific Northwest Council, so New England Council. So they have all of these councils in in coastal regions. And there's another commission that was set up called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. People just call it ASMFC. And ASMFC was actually set up in World War II to figure out a way to literally feed the troops. And since that time, you know, post-World War II, they were managing all these fisheries on the Atlantic coast, and the commission just kept going on. So essentially the Mid-Atlantic Council, which should be governing striped bass, gives that governing authority to ASMFC. Um, and and the the stocks that are managed by ASMFC on the East Coast are things like black sea bass, summer flounder, red snapper, uh, the whole the whole Gulf Reef complex for million snapper, amberjack, um, uh, scup on the East Coast, American eel. Uh, you know, there there's everything that swims that's harvested for money somehow has to go through one of the regional councils and and they're they're governed by the by the Magnus and Stevens Act. How are the men hated doing? I read the book a couple years ago. I forgot which one. Most, Most important, important fish. fish. Right. Yeah, right. And and his analogy was removing the men hating from the Chesapeake Bay is like removing your liver from your body. And that yeah, they'll but, take but, fish that are the size of your thumb if they can get them. Oh yeah, no. So, so this is this is kind of the status of Menhaden. Um, they are there. There's a there's a robust uh, local bait fishery, and they catch them with pound nets, which is a stake net, a couple of hundred yards long, with a containment trap on one end of it that are dotted all around the Chesapeake Bay. And, and they take a considerable amount of fish, you know, 8 million pounds a year, give or take a little bit. The, the real kicker, and most of, that, most of that is used for bait for crab pots or striped bass. The, the killer is the reduction fishery in Reedville. And it's called Omega Protein. It's now owned by Cook Aquaculture. They run nine, ten boats out of Reedville. And they're big, hundred-foot-plus steel purse saners. And what happens is they'll get in a plane, and the plane will fly around and find big schools of Menhaden on the surface. They call the ships in. And the purse seine is a mile wide. They'll send little boats out, circle up the school, uh, dump them in the boat, and they go to the factory and they get boiled down for their oil. They're very rich in omega threes. The bulk of the bulk prior to Cook buying them last year, the bulk of the Menhaden oil was used for poultry feed in China. So they were turning it essentially into chicken feed. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, some of it, they, they have two fisheries. They have one in Virginia and another in Venice, Louisiana. Atlantic Menhaden in 
Virginia are the only ones that are safe for human consumption. So they also turn the the oil into the omega three capsules that you see in uh, that you see in grocery stores. And then author uh, Paul Greenberg has a book coming out this summer called The Omega Principle, which I think is all about that. I'm looking forward. Yeah, and to it, it that. doesn't it doesn't work. By the way, they've they've proven it over and over again that if you actually want the omega the good omega threes, oddly enough, you have to eat the fish. You, you, the pills don't do much for you other than give you bad breath. Um, so hopefully, hopefully a few people listening, that's new information for them and they will start eating fish instead of eating our menhaden. So it's a, it's a double whammy, Rob, and, and I'll, I know we're, you know, this is, this is time, so I'll just try to get through it as quickly as possible. But it's a double whammy with menhaden because they're actually pretty efficient filter feeders. So when you remove menhaden, you're not only taking away the primary food source for striped bass and the most healthy food source for striped bass, but you're removing the ability of the bay to, to filter the water. <laughs> you know, you, you have to look at it, It's really kind of magical when you understand it from a scientific perspective, because essentially menhaden are converting the sun's energy to protein. So the sun's energy being plant, creating plankton and algae, the menhaden filter it out turn it into, you know, they're very rich in omega oils, very, very prized as food for striped bass. So they are they are a, a very low on the trophic level link between photosynthesis and protein. It's pretty incredible. Uh, one, one adult menhaden, uh, it takes about a 1,000 bay anchovies to equal the protein in one adult menhaden. So when you, when you take that away from striped bass, you start seeing – uh, the striped bass become diseased, undersized, skinny, weak. Uh, several years ago, there was 70% of the striped bass in the Chesapeake Bay had a wasting disease called microbacteriosis that's directly related to malnutrition. When there's no menhaden, stripers turn on other things to eat. We've had a dramatic decline in weak fish over the years. Uh, we don't see them anymore. There's so few left in the population that scientists don't know if there's enough biological diversity to support a recovery, essentially they grow to about 11 inches and then become food for striped bass. And it's very sad because when I moved here 20 years ago, it was a guarantee that you could go out and find weak fish from two to 10 pounds and catch them constantly all day long, easiest fish in the bay to catch. And they're gone. Uh, new guys coming into the sport, probably don't even know what they look like. It's a very it's a very very sad thing. Uh when you when you look at that and you understand that you know for for one company's profit to feed chickens in China, uh they they have they have taken away a huge part of the resource for all our kids and grandkids. Um and and we don't we don't know if they'll ever come back. So to put it in perspective, of all the fishing ports in the United States besides the ones in Alaska, uh, the only one that catches more pounds of fish is New Bed is the New Bedford Port in Massachusetts, and they fish, you know, the Grand Banks, George's Banks, all of that area, and and that complex provides about twenty different species, whether it's cod, haddock, scallops, flounder, you know, several species of flounder, and Omega's port in Reedville with nine boats. 
comes in second for overall weight of fish, and they catch one species. One species. That and it's is... about they take out of the bay. They take about four hundred million pounds of menhaden a year. So how does Magnuson Stevens work to prevent that? It's all it's, it's all inside it's the it's all inside the Chesapeake Bay. That's crazy. They're not going out beyond three miles to get the menhaden. And here's the here's the kicker, Rob. It's the menhaden reduction fishery is not managed by VMRC, the Virginia Marine Resources Commission. It's actually managed by the Virginia legislature. Okay, that makes sense. So you can imagine how much Omega donates to the delegates in Virginia, right? It's it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and and we've, I mean, I, I've been, I personally have been fighting the Menhaden fight for almost twenty years. Um, it's it's very frustrating. A lot of times, it's very heartbreaking. Um, and and you just you know you just you just have to keep fighting because what they're what they're doing is beyond comprehension. Do more menhaden swim in from the ocean to repopulate, or is it solely a Chesapeake Bay population that just keeps getting hammered and hammered? So the Chesapeake Bay is the biggest estuary on the East Coast. The The spawning strategy of menhaden is that they sit, they, they spawn out in open water in the ocean, and the larva drifts in on the currents to the Chesapeake Bay. And the juveniles, which we call peanut bunker, or peanuts, the, the peanuts live here until they reach an adult age, and then they go join the coastal stock, which can be found from you know Florida to Maine. But it's it's a it's a localized targeted fishery, and it they do not net in Maryland, but they have to swim through Virginia to get to the Maryland portion of the Chesapeake Bay. So it's like our southern neighbors are just strangling us. They're strangling us. We we Stamped don't get out at the border. Part. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they are they are just hammered before they can get to Maryland. Good job, Virginia. <laughs> but I'll t- I will tell you this: there is a hope. Uh, Virginia has a new governor, Governor Northam, and he has shown incredible leadership in his short tenure. And I would like to give a shout out to Governor Northam because it's such. A breath of fresh air. None of these changes happen fast, but he is a guy who gets it and and understands that you know there has to be a better way. Uh, so so for all the fishermen who are involved in advocacy and all the environmental groups, um, you know we applaud you, Governor Governor Northam, uh, for your leadership. You know th- thus far in your in your tenure as Virginia's governor, it's it's been a wonderful thing to see. And he just made it legal to serve snakehead on restaurants, and they're putting him on the menu in Fredericksburg now. Yeah, he gets it. He he really he really gets it. He he has people on his staff that are very well educated and trained uh, in marine resources. And I, I really I'm, I am a I'm a consummate pessimist when it comes to these fights. 
And and what I can tell you is I I I, I believe in this guy. He's not my governor, but I, I know I know when it's all over with, he's going to make a difference. He gets it. And then you have the president who serves bald eagle for state dinners. Hey, bald eagle's delicious, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> Those talons are great for picking your teeth after you're done. Yeah, that's that's what I use for toothpick, man. <laughs> so how how are you involved? What do you do besides uh, going to, to talks and posting things online and, and going to talk to groups? How are you getting the message out to the government leaders that there needs to be enforcement and involvement and protection for fish? Currently, I run my own business. Um, I am, uh, I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, uh, done some expert witness testimony in the Senate, uh, spent, spent a lot of time talking to our elected officials, bringing fishermen into DC. Uh, and, and what I am, what I'm trying to do is create a voice that is totally lacking for saltwater fishermen who actually care about the future. You know, Rob, I know you spend a lot of time trout fishing and, and, and I know you're a, you know, a, an accomplished uh, freshwater angler and the saltwater community is maybe a generation behind. I'll give you an example. You know, what, what would happen on social media if somebody put up a picture of a 10 pound largemouth dead on a dock and said, Hey, look what I caught. You know, mm, he's going to taste good tonight. You know, he would, they would, he would get a gang of crazy people coming to his house and potentially burn it down. You know, <laughs> freshwater anglers understand that, like, here's my little lake, and I can fish this thing out really quickly. Or, or here's my river, and if I don't treat it correctly, it's not going to be there next year. And and saltwater anglers are faced, you know, with these vast stretches of water. And they think that it's a cornucopia that has no bottom. And, and what's happening is, you know, we're experiencing the same thing that the freshwater community experienced probably 30, 40 years ago, where folks are saying, Hey, wait a minute. Maybe we shouldn't kill our limit every time we go out. Maybe we should leave some in the water and we don't have as, as kind of, you know, people who care about the future of saltwater fishing, we don't have a voice. You know, you guys have Trout Unlimited and, and you know, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is a great group that just started. I strongly recommend people looking into that group. I know the guys who run it, and, and they're doing a fantastic job. But you have all these organizations that lobby effectively to preserve the resources and I am trying to provide a voice for saltwater anglers on Capitol Hill. And, and specifically, you know, the hot button issue right now is Magnus and Stevens. As I, as I mentioned before, it's a great law. It's protected our resources. It's recovered an amazing amount of stocks that were overfished. Recently, NOAA came out with a report, I believe, last week that said over 90% of our fisheries managed under Magnuson are not overfished. So it's doing a fantastic job. And as an angler, you really just want to go out there 
and have a reasonable expectation that you'll catch something. You know, catching a big fish is great. Catching a lot of fish is great. You know, that's ideal abundance. But if you, it's hard to get people to go fishing if there's no fish to catch. They'll take up golf. They'll take up tennis. And the less people that are getting involved in the outdoors, the less we're going to be able to protect it. Because we are the voice. Guys like you, guys like me, um, we're, we're the voice. There, there is nobody else. Um, so, so we, we want to keep the fish in the water so we can raise the next generation to be good stewards of the resource. And unfortunately, with the new administration and the way things have changed in DC, there's a, there's a couple of attempts a couple of bills, uh, HR 200, SB 1520, that are that are attempting to reauthorize Magnuson, and basically rolling back all of the good work that we did uh, in 2006 reauthorization and the 96 reauthorization. Um, they they want to roll that back and and essentially hammer down and catch more fish now to sell more motors and fishing rods and and just the regular guys who care about the future and are in it more. I guess the best way to put it, Rob, is we're guys like you and I, we're in it for the experience. I, I get as much of a kick of seeing an Osprey grab a fish or a bald Eagle fight, you know, it's territory or seeing a heron standing on the rocks is I do catch in a decent fish. Or I, I certainly take more joy in seeing my son or my nephews catch a fish. So it, I think as time goes on and you and you evolve as a fisherman, it's, it's about the experience, and, and you want that expectation. You want there to be fish in the water. You, you, you want your expectations of abundance to be met, and it's, it's the overall day. It's not how many fish you can put in the box. Um, so, you know, the voice, how many can we put in the box, that's coming from, sadly, the recreational industry. They have kind of weaponized the advocacy movement amongst saltwater anglers, and it's not regular guys who fish a lot. It's Shimano. It's Yamaha Motors. It's groups like that, national marine manufacturers. And it's a very scary thing because essentially – Big giant corporations, especially Yamaha and Shimano that are in Japan, essentially want to turn our fisheries into Japan. <laughs> you know, I, it's as someone for I, I've worked in this for about 20 years and I've never seen anything like this. Uh, our voice is not being heard. And under the current administration, it's a very scary time because they're very pro industry. And this is not, I, I am not a crazy environmentalist at all. Uh, but that said, I know what we need to do. I understand what we need to do to preserve not only our traditions, but the resources. And listening to industry who's more concerned about their quarterly profits than if their son or daughter or son or granddaughter or grandson can go out and live the way that we live now. Right. Um, that's my concern. That is not their concern. 
That's just common and, sense. And it's very, it's a very scary time. Uh, all politics aside, it's a very scary time for saltwater anglers because we get a chance to reauthorize Magnuson about once every 10 years. And if we blow the chance, we're going to be stuck with our bad decisions. So it's very, it's very similar to kind of Thermopylae. <laughs> there's, there's a very small number of people who are just piling, holding the line, standing at the gates, trying to fend off these horrible attempts to weaken the law so that we can preserve the resources. I, I, I guess I can frame it like this, Rob. If you could imagine a, a perfect world, a nirvana for fisheries, and, and this, this great all-encompassing law that would protect them and preserve them for the future, and you had an opportunity to make it better, if you were to write a short list, just from your experiences on the Potomac, I bet you it would include things like clean water, habitat restoration, Clean water being kind of like sewage outflows, stormwater runoff, overdevelopment, impervious surfaces. Um, you, you would probably also focus on habitat, as I mentioned. There would be, there would of course be, you know, science-backed initiatives to make sure that we have the best science available to manage the fisheries, understanding that it's a blood sport, and yes, we are going to kill things, but we have to leave enough for future generations. I mean, that's the pie in the sky. Like, like let's make, let's play the long game. Let's preserve what we're doing. And it, that again, that voice is not being heard. And I think if, especially for freshwater anglers, it's easy to understand when you see what's going on with federal lands. We all know that the States out West don't have the money or resources to manage all of this federal property. And if the rights to this federal public land, as we are all public landowners, I think, I think we own me and you, whether we realize it or not, are part owners of like 600 million acres of land in the United States where we can park a car and walk around for days and get lost in the woods. And that's something that's really special about this country that Theodore Roosevelt set up, you know, a hundred years ago. So, when you when you start hearing this administration taking these public lands and wanting to give them to the states and you know the states can't afford them they're going to start selling off the mining rights the, the timber rights all of these things and and our, our our jointly owned property as being citizens of this country is going to be taken away from us it's almost the exact same thing uh the, these these bills want to take governing some some aspects of managing fisheries and give them to the states that cannot afford to do so. I mean, Louisiana is an example, had a $400 million budget shortfall in their state budget, and they're, they're pushing the Gulf states to manage some of these fisheries, and that's going to increase their costs by tens of millions of dollars if, if, the, if the onus is on the states. How can they afford to do that? How can how can they provide the science? How can they provide the um, the 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 officers to patrol and enforce the laws? That they don't have the ability to do that. So they can't even do that in D.C. Just next to a parking lot, they can't send someone down to you know bust somebody taking shad out of the river. 
So I, I guess my analogy, my analogy worked then you understand, you know, we need, we need an independent group of scientists like Noah to be able to not only to tell us what to do, but to enforce the law. So when you start, when you start piecemeal taking that away from the federal government and giving it to states, you know, I, I use Governor Northam as an example. The, the previous governor of Virginia didn't really care that much about the Chesapeake Bay and the fisheries and how they were managed. And then you get a change in administration and everything changes. And it's a lot more volatile in the states than it even is in the federal government. So the federal government, whether people like it or not, does provide consistency in these management decisions. And, and by and large, NOAA has done a fantastic job working with National Academy of Sciences, very various other, uh, you know, state and local agencies. And, and they've really, they've, look, if, if 90% of the fish are not being overfished, I, I think, I think that proof is in the pudding. They're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. So to, to reauthorize these, these bad bills, HR 200 and SB 1520, you can, you can find them and you can read them on, uh, congress.gov. And and essentially what they are doing is gutting Magnus and Stevens so large corporations can maximize their quarterly profits. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Have you read about what's going on in Greenland now? I believe it's Greenland. Uh, I, I know that they have stopped commercial fishing for salmon for 12 years. 12 years. years. That is amazing. They did it the right way. Um, they... They are allowing the commercial fishermen some concessions, um, and and you know they work through these issues, and I and I think nobody loses with this. You know that it'll it'll give the salmon population two generations because it's about six years for a generation. It'll give them two generations to recover. It'll give them a little free space in Greenland. And they're they're also they're also helping the commercial guys out because you know look they have families too and and they're they were following the law they weren't doing anything wrong and now they're not going to be allowed to do it for twelve years so the the Greenland government from my understanding did the right thing and and are helping them find them other means to make a living mm-hmm. uh, so it's it it's kind of a win win for everyone. It's amazing how humans have been around and they repeatedly, continually just pillage resources and then just move on to the next one without knowing that you're going to deplete the whole thing and ruin it forever. And they continue to do it. You as know, as smart as a, a organism as we are, we're pretty damn dumb. I I don't disagree with that. What what I would say to you is this, and, and a lot of these talks that I give, you know, if somebody writes about them afterwards, they're, they're, I'm, I'm always kind of positioned as a doom and gloom, you know, eco crazy person who just kind of gives the worst possible scenarios. And I, I guess I can understand people feeling that way, but what I would say is this, that there have been incredible victories and, and, and great things that have happened. We have, we have saved species and brought them back 
many times, many times. And the bad decisions that are made are, are made because the other side has a stronger lobby than the side that always looks to the future. And my philosophy in fisheries management has always been this. Everyone's going to get their slice of the pie, whether it's the charter boat for higher operators, recreational anglers, commercial harvesters. Everyone has their slice of the pie. And instead of fighting over the pie for a bigger slice, what we should do is make a bigger pie. And then nobody fights. So it, if if we could all just get on the same page and say, hey, look, <laughs> we could do things like improve water quality, improve habitat, make sure the scientists are funded adequately. We can use technology that we never had before to give real-time data to the scientists on what we're catching and what we're seeing. We, ha- we have a stake in this game, too. We can do better. So if we did all of those things and all work together, we could make the economy stronger. We could make it safe to swim in the Chesapeake Bay. We could ensure a future for our children and grandchildren and everyone would be happy and nobody would fight. But instead it's almost like a race to the bottom. And I don't understand it either. It's very disheartening to me, but you can never give up fighting. And, and I know we're not quite out of time, but I, I, I know you have a ton of people that listen to this podcast and I, I want to thank you before it seems like I'm just kind of putting it in at the end because this is an opportunity to talk to people that I usually don't get to talk to. And, and I, I know they're conservation minded and I know your listeners care about it. So, you know, we need a higher level of involvement because if the senators and other Congress people in D.C. aren't hearing from us and they're hearing from groups that are run by Yamaha and Shimano and they're saying, no, 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 all the recreational anglers, they, they want to hammer down and catch as many, open everything up. We want to fish. We don't have access. We Rob, I think you know that's bull. Mm-hmm. The, you know, any one of us, you, you live in a, a metropolitan area with millions and millions of people, and you have carved out a guiding business right next to your home. We all have access. That's one of the greatest things about this country. I can walk down the street and fish in a pond. I can walk in another direction and fish in the bay. Nobody tells me I can't. We have that access, but nobody's going to want to do it if there aren't fish there. It's not about access. It's about a healthy resource. We all we already have the access. So they're, they're creating a narrative that a lot of people are feeding into. So imagine this. I'll try to wrap this up. It's a, it's a state's rights issue because the federal government is bad. So I think that resonates with a large part of the population. That's not true in this case for marine resources and the other thing is we don't have access to the fisheries well i can tell you right now this is not you know andy griffith and opie walking down the street with fishing rods and bobbers going to the local pond these are guys with 
36 foot Freemans, trip 300 motors on the back. It's a million dollar boat, $1,500 in gas to get out to the grounds. That's not access. That's a, that's a 1% of the population are concerned about that. You know, the saltwater fishing is different. Um, we, access issues are different. So, so the, the other side is saying we don't have access. States can manage things better. And, and that is just a knee jerk triggering response for people to, you know, anyone who doesn't like the federal government will just, oh yeah, the federal government's bad. Let's reauthorize Magnuson. And you just, you know, you just hit your head against the desk. And say, uh, you know, they, they, they are controlling the narrative. So anyone listening to this, you know, if you care about the future, if you, if you're a saltwater fisherman, even if you're a freshwater fisherman, you know, take a moment, write your senator, write your congressman. You can, you can find all their information on congress.gov and tell them that you would appreciate it if they did not support HR 200 or S, or for the Senate side, SB 1520. Um, because they need to hear from you. They need to hear from you. They are not hearing from you. And there's only so many of us and we can only do so much. And, and we need, we need help from everyone right now because it's, it's coming to a head. It's coming to a head. Where can, is there something online where people can look at all these laws and then call their congressmen and senators? So there's a there's a bunch of different organizations out there that have some fantastic material online. Um, the the two that I think are the most comprehensive, because you know, I don't want to be the guy Rob that that says state access, federal government, states can do it better than federal government can. I actually want people to be educated and make their own decision on the issue. So two of the most comprehensive reviews of the bill of of these bad bills are uh you they can be found at oceanconservancy.org and the other website that just did an incredible job of i mean it's a it's a 15 page document breaking down every aspect of the bill is marine fish conservation network and their website is conservefish.org and and the ability to read that and understand it and then make your own decision. I'm, I'm not trying to make people's decisions for them. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to educate them. And, and, and once they understand this, it's a no brainer. So again, oceanconservancy.org and marine fish conservation network and their, their website is conservefish.org. Both have comprehensive reviews of these bills and the good, bad and the ugly that surround all of them. So please educate yourselves. If you guys are listening, please educate yourselves and, and take a moment and, and send something in. It'll take 15 minutes and it, man, is it worth it? Where can people contact you? How can people get in contact with you? The easiest way, Rob, to get in contact with me is just to email me. Uh, if anyone has any questions, my email is tony.friedrich at gmail.com and that's t-o-n-y dot f-r-i-e-d-r-i-c-h at gmail.com that is the easiest way to get in touch with me and uh and if someone shoots me an email i'll do everything i can to get back to them as soon as possible when you moved to jersey did you have to get used to how people pronounced your first name so 
I remember when I stepped on the bus for high school and there are all these guys looking at me and, uh, and I sat down and I said, you know, hi, I'm Tony. I'm from Tennessee and where do y'all hunt and fish? And I, I think the first comment that I got was like, Moose Rocco, kill him. So. <laughs> Yo, Tony, sit down. It was a it was a culture shock. I'll just put it that way. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, you got a swampy, rainy weekend ahead of you. Uh, you know, what's four inches of rain on top of another fifteen? Um, I, I will say that you know the, I have never seen in all of my years on the bay a worse red tide this time of year. Usually, we get our algae blooms and red tides kind of in the middle of the summer. And the last time I was out fishing a few days ago, we spent more time trying to find clean water than we did trying to find fish. So this this rain is taking a toll. I mean, I, I know it absolutely annihilated the Potomac, uh, but it's it's taken a toll on the bay too. And again, gets back to these laws, you know, What's been Rob, with Fre- I don't know Frederick if you with uh, Ellicott City. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, the, the, Rob, sheet, I ru- sheet runoff. Uh, Rob, I don't know if you caught it, but maybe your listeners would be interested. There's a, a study that just came out in the Puget Sound where they took aquaculture mussels, so mussels that were grown, um, not not wild shellfish but they were they were grown specifically just to harvest kind of like farming mussels and they they took some of them and they moved them around urban centers and within a few weeks they were tested and they had trace amounts of oxycontin and they it's they frightening. did the same thing they did the same thing in Baltimore with uh, all the creeks that run through Baltimore it was Nabo and, and Old Bay they well <laughs> Uh, try try uh, meth and speed. Oh my goodness! In the aquatic insects, and that's coming from human urine. Yeah, that's like the Potomac. Most of the male bass have got ovaries from the birth control that's excreted and bovine hormones. So, at what juncture? I'll just go back to your previous question. At what juncture do we wake up and understand that even if you don't care about this stuff, that essentially we're poisoning ourselves? Every day, with the water we drink and the things we eat and what we're doing, and you know, there's I guess I guess the overarching theme of this whole talk and what I want people to understand is that we can make it better and we can make a difference, but you have to you have to fight for it. It doesn't you, you can't just sit back and trust other people to do it for you. You you have to fight for it every day. Uh, so get involved, uh, become friends with your legislators, make sure they know your name and tell them this stuff matters to you because I, I hope it does. And, and, and I hope this resonates with some people, uh, because this is where this, this is where America is great. Because if you do get involved, I promise you, you can make a difference. You can. You'll lose some, and it'll be disheartening. But this is one of those things where if you get involved and you have a reasonable 
uh, voice and, and, and well-stated and articulate, science-backed, you're going to end up winning in the long run. We just need more voices. We've got all the listeners to do that. All right. Anything else you want to mention before we wrap it up? I, Rob, I just want to thank you again for the opportunity. It, it really means an awful lot to me, on a even on a personal level. Um, you know, you've done a great job with this podcast. Uh, I, I know you have a ton of loyal listeners, and and this isn't the easiest, funnest, brightest topic to talk about. Uh, and and really, I, I sincerely appreciate the opportunity uh, to to talk to your audience and and just really thank you a lot. I appreciate you coming on and taking the time. I want to get your uh, your voice out there to everybody. Well, I appreciate it, Rob. All right. Thanks. I'll tell you how much I appreciate it. I, I know you're I know you're very in tune with conservation, um, and you know you and I should figure out a way to. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is. Like join forces, work together, right. but. There, there, there are things where there's that are important, and there are so few of us that are are out there talking to people about the reality of, of what's going on and and how to help. That we all have to. My point is, we just all have to get along, respect each other, and and give each other opportunities to, you know, shine. It's a very small community. And I just I, I appreciate you letting me do this immensely. And uh, if you ever need anything from me, or you never ever have any questions, or I can ever do anything for you, you know, please let me know. Um, and I think all this is great. Fantastic. Thank you again. All right, Rob. All right, take care. You have a good day, buddy. All right, you Bye. Too. cheers. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.